Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos. It is a very special edition of the podcast. I'm Cameron Abadi. I'm uh, with you in Berlin, Germany, as always. But I'm not alone this time. I'm with Adam Twos, uh, <laughs> FP's economics columnist and, you know, Columbia University professor. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Yeah, it is remarkable. Uh, we're both in the same room. We're talking face to face. Adams is passing through town. So unfortunately, this is not going to be a permanent occurrence, but you know, we're trying to take advantage of it. Uh, so today's episode, we have two segments as always. The second one is going to be on Ukraine's access to arms and the arms industry more generally. That will be after our first segment, which is on the US stock market. The news data point there is 13, that is 13%. That's the percentage at which NASDAQ fell just in the month of April. April was the worst month for investors since March 2020's pandemic panic. Down today, Whoa. more than 4%, rough day. <laughs> NASDAQ wasn't alone. Turns out the S&P 500 is also off to its worst start since 1939. Today, Berkshire Hathaway CEO Warren Buffett blasted Wall Street bankers for turning the market into a, quote, casino with rampant speculation. More generally, Nasdaq is down 21% on the year. You know, big stocks that we all are familiar with uh, are also down. Apple, Amazon, Netflix. Half of the S&P... Uh, reports this week in a market that's kind of in free fall. You gave those numbers. Yeah, Adam, I mean, can, can you say uh, to the best of your estimate why? I mean, the underlying reasons why the U.S. stock markets are so soft right now? Well, if you ask uh, stockbrokers or analysts um, right now, they'll give you half a dozen different reasons why the market has moved the way it has um, over recent months. If they didn't, if there wasn't that diversity of opinions, there wouldn't really be any trading, right? Because the price is set by people buying and selling. So for everyone who sells, and there's been a preponderance of people trying to sell, there was also got to be someone who buys. So in the market itself, there is always this difference of opinion. If you asked why on the whole people are buying and selling at lower prices, the key I think most people would point to is the Fed. And uh, we're in a situation with rising prices. Some will even regard this as a situation of really serious inflationary threat. The Fed has made clear that it's going to raise interest rates considerably, and that is going to cool the economy. Some people are even talking in rather grim terms about demand destruction. And none of that sends a positive signal to business because that's basically telling you the economy is going to cool off. Trade will be down, uh, demand will be down, and things will be worse. But what's really interesting is that if you look across the different sectors of the stock market, we see rather different picture. So information stocks, IT, tech has been really the sectors that's been hit most hard. And I think it's important to differentiate there between two different elements. One is small tech stocks, which are just bona fide risky and probably always rare. And they were the ones that were going to get sold off first as soon as things got a little rougher. And the big tech stocks, the really the names that everyone will know, they've marked up such huge gains over the recent period that in a sense, people are just cashing out. They're taking the profits they made, even if you, you know, are making a small, slightly less than you expected to make two or three months ago, you still year on year have made a huge gain. So you're taking that right now. If you contrast the tech sector to staples, consumer staples, for instance, or commodities, uh, like the energy sector, it's a completely different story. They've actually done just fine. Uh, energy is booming, in fact, not surprisingly, because energy prices, oil and gas prices are, are surging. So we're seeing within this overall pattern of a slowing economy, um, sell activity as to where people 
are putting their money. Another group of stocks which has been doing very well are, are defense uh, contractors who are, who are making weapons, some of which are being supplied to the Ukrainian war. That bears on the, the second segment. But yeah, I wanted to get into the question of why this is a problem. I mean, it, it does seem like a weak stock market would primarily affect the rich who have the most investments. But it always does seem like in the United States, you know, it seems like a weak stock market becomes a more general political problem. It's something people in Washington talk about, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, why, why is that? Well, one of the reasons we haven't talked much about the stock market on this show is that, in a sense, um, you know, indirectly at least, we're trying to make the point that the stock market really isn't the economy. And that's contrary, exactly as you say, to the way in which market news, economic news is reported in the United States on a daily basis. I mean, if you turn on the television, if you follow the right news channels, you're just bombarded with market news all day long and the latest ups and downs of Netflix and Amazon and Apple and so on, the huge news items. But they do really affect only a small percentage of the population. Over uh, 89% of all equities in the United States are held by the top 10% of the wealth distribution and the top 1% hold 38%. So it's really a story for them. And so you could say that this bias, this weird distorting of economic news is a reflection of the inequalities of society because essentially what is being suggested is that this matters, this is the economic news, and everyone should care. Whereas, in fact, what we should be much more focused on are you know, the employment situation. And oddly, the employment situation tends to get subsumed into the stock market story. So the reason why we care about jobs numbers is not so much as it were what's happening in the actual economy and the millions and tens of millions and indeed more than 100 million people in the labor market. It matters because of the damage it can do or the upswing it can deliver to the stock market. Uh, have there been moments when a big crash in stocks have affected the economy? In the recent past, it's really quite difficult to think of such moments. So the 1987 setback on Wall Street didn't really generate a recession. The dot-com bust in the late 90s, early 2000s did real damage to California and wrecked many dreams of the people involved in those early dot-com uh, ventures. But it didn't produce a national economic crisis because it didn't produce a banking crisis. And it's really when, as in 1929 or in 2008, a stock market sell-off goes hand in hand with a broader financial crisis that we're talking about, you know, epic economic news. And that is what we so far, I think, are fairly confident about being able to avoid in 2022. Yeah, when you talk about the distorted uh, relationship of the stock market to public discourse, I mean, we've talked about how some of these subjects line up with my biography, but I, I always recall watching the news with my dad uh, when I was growing up. And right in the middle of the newscast, they would have all the stock news, uh, uh, what was up and what was down. And I had no idea what they were talking about, but it does seem very important. Is that like universal in other countries or not? I don't know if that accords with your upbringing, Adam. It's much more dominant in the United States, but the German Tagesschau, generally speaking, brings the DAX number at the very end in a kind of almost ritualistic way. It's not given much context. I think what's different about the US is you get the number and then you get the whole backstory too. So they kind of flesh it out and turn it into this huge scene. And I think that has quite a lot to do with things like private pension funds. You know, if, if as in the US, the upper middle class has very considerable amounts of money invested in private pension funds, then you care <laughs> because uh, there's your money going up and down every single day and it rides on individual stocks. Yeah. My dad and I just watched in, in silence mostly. Um, but, but in any case, um, I want to try to ask about 
the sort of political response that, that a weak stock market then elicits in the United States. I mean, does the government have ways of goosing the stock market then when it's soft like this? And does it then make use of them generally? Well, if you listen to a president like Donald Trump, you really might think so. Um, he, he was, I think, unique amongst recent presidents in an attitude which was almost that he owned the stock market. And you know, he regarded you know highs on the market as his personal achievement. He, he came pretty close to giving investment advice. You know, I think this could be a good moment to buy the dip. You know, he, he existed in a, uh, in a symbiotic relationship, as we know, with television. And the bit of the television that he followed very closely was the market news. And he drew some of his senior economic advisors from you know, Larry Kudlow, people like that, for, who were frontline market journalists. I mean, very little reputation as academic or technical economists, but but market journalists, on the whole, that isn't the position that presidents adopt. Now, of course, a presidential agenda, a party's political agenda can dramatically affect the market. If you have a president and a party, as Trump and the Republicans were in 2017, committed to slashing corporate tax rates, well, that's going to be good for the market in general. If you have a party or a government generally committed to gutting regulation, whether or not they can pass legislation, that's generally going to be good for the market. We know that sentiment crashed when uh, Biden was elected uh, across large parts of the business community for no good reason, because Biden doesn't mean them any harm. But those are kind of long run you know, effects that you can achieve. You can move the mood music. In terms of short run impact on, of government policy on the market, the thing that matters above all else is the Fed. It's the central bank, uh, the unelected arm, uh, if you like, of government. But strikingly, in the United States in particular, since the 1987 moment, there's been an underlying sense that even the Fed, which is notionally independent and does not have a mandate to target ever-increasing stock markets, it has a mandate to stabilize inflation notionally and to maximize employment and financial stability, but nevertheless, there's an underlying sense that the Fed cares about the market. And that's, in a sense, one of the things, the psychodramas that's being played out in the spring of 2022 is how much does the Fed care? Does it really care about us? Is this some time, you know, is this a moment for tough love? Oh, no, that'd be terrible. We wouldn't want that. Can we go back to being cuddled, please? And I think that's one of the questions we're going to be testing is how long the, the Fed can show the markets a cold shoulder. So uh, how does all this contrast with the politics of you know, what are pretty chronically weak stock markets in Europe. So yeah, what is the situation like in Europe? Well, it's definitely true that the European markets have been weak really for more than a decade. It's since 2008-9 is where they break apart from the US experience. That has something to do with the fact that Europe doesn't have any of the big tech platform businesses the United States has, so it misses that bit. But even if you take big tech out, the so-called FANG stocks, Facebook and so on, the European markets lag very seriously. In the immediate past, in the last couple of months, in fact, the opposite is the case because it's the tech bit that has sold off hardest in the United States. That's relatively less represented in Europe. So the European markets haven't been booming, but they haven't taken the same sort of hits that the American markets have. Overall, the basic reason why none of this matters to the same degree in Europe that it does in the United States and why it will be really anomalous for a German chancellor to pronounce on the level of the stock market is that hardly any Germans own stock directly. So the percentage of Germans, even after a recent craze for buying stocks, the percentage of Germans uh, owning shares directly is about 15%, whereas in the United States, it's 55%. So the market just matters much more. And in fact, 60% of the German stock market is owned by foreign investors, of which Americans are very prominent. So 
the DAX, the German stock market, is majority foreign owned. And it's those interests which ultimately hinge on that market. So when it comes specifically to the U.S. stock market, is there, you know, an aspect by which that matters internationally? I mean, do other countries have reason to be following what's going on specifically in the U.S. stock market if they're not, you know, sort of obsessing over their own? I mean, what, what are the mechanisms by which a weak U.S. stock market affects the rest of the world? Well, first of all, the U.S. stock market's gigantic. And so it does shift opinion and moods across financial markets around the world. And secondly, 40% of the U.S. stock market, and that's about $13.7 trillion, are owned by foreigners. So when we think of national stock markets, it, there's really a kind of fallacy involved. The European ones have heavy American representation in them, and 40% of America's market is foreign-owned. And then of the rest that's American-owned, the vast majority of it is owned by the top 10%, and then an even large slice by the top 1%, right? So it's a very weird thing that we track that doesn't have that much to do with ordinary Americans, nowhere near as much as you'd imagine from the, the news report. So who is it that owns these stocks in America that is not individual Europeans, because they don't own stocks at home either, it's institutional European investors. So European pension funds own American stocks. Why? Because it's the biggest, the most dynamic market in the world, and it's the one that's taken care of by the Fed. And so being taken care of by the Fed seems like a pretty good place to park German pensions, for instance. The other reason why they care is the stock market is symptomatic of other bigger things going on in the global financial system. And if the American stock market is going down right now, it's because the Fed is moving and the Fed moving changes the terms of everything of which the American stock market is symptomatic. In general, the American equity market is a highly dynamic piece of the American financial puzzle and everyone is interested in that and everyone has to track it. But to be honest, in the end, which is why we also tend to focus so much more in this show on the bond market. It is fixed income, which is the bigger, more dominant, if you like, the grown-up market for financial investment. Because the difference between bonds and, and especially government bonds and, and equities is precisely that government bonds don't have all of the extraneous detail about corporate strategy and brands and CEOs and all of that, which is noise from the point of view of an investor, it's really quite difficult to figure out. I mean, just maybe finally, I'm curious, given the size of this, what you're describing, the, the stock markets and its relative importance, I remember the phrase too big to fail when it came to certain financial institutions. Could that be applied to the stock market as a whole in the US? I mean, is that now when you say 55% of, of Americans own stock and, and other stock markets are, around the world are tied to it, is it too big to fall, <laughs> um, uh, if not too big to fail? You could gain that impression from the way in which the Fed reacts to equity market movements. But there is an absolutely crucial difference between investing in a bond and investing in an equity. When you buy an equity as an investor, you take the risk of it going up and going down. And that is part of the gamble. But when you're talking about bank debt or bond debt issuance, what you're talking about is a rupture of a commitment which is supposed to be much more cast iron and has the implication, therefore, of a much more fundamental break. If, you, if, you, if an equity price goes down and the dividends go down, no legal contract has been ruptured. If you fail to make a payment on a bond, you are in default. In other words, bankruptcy triggers an entire legal process. So no, the pressure on policymakers to react to equity markets should, in the best case, under good conditions, really be much less intense than it is for them to stabilize bond markets and the banking system in particular that stands behind all of this. 
Gotcha. I imagine, again, it won't be the last time we talk about bond markets, but maybe a while until we talk about stock markets. Uh, In the meantime, stick around to hear about one of those stocks that's been doing okay, the arms industry. So uh, we'll take a break and uh, be right back. You know, we've been doing this podcast for about six months, and we realized that the only voices that have appeared on the show so far uh, have been Adam's and, and my own, and we wanted to change that. And uh, we were hoping to start with the voices of our, of our listeners. So if you're interested, I would ask that you go to uh, our ones and twos page at foreignpolicy.com slash podcasts. And you'll find something there called the speak pipe button. should be pretty easy to use. Basically, it'll let you leave a voice message right on the website. Um, You can say anything you want, whether it's feedback or or episode ideas or or questions to direct to us. And I promise we'll be listening. And in fact, we'll be looking for messages to include at the end of our episodes. Hi, and welcome back. Again, we're both in Berlin. Um, And uh, the data point we have for you is 20 billion. That's $20 billion. That's the amount of the $33 billion assistance package for Ukraine that the U.S. government is passing that is reserved specifically for weapons. Uh, You know, that's in addition to another piece of legislation, what's being called the Lend-Lease Act. Uh, in which Ukraine will have access to all sorts of weapons that the U.S. government already has. The cost of this fight uh, is not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country, or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. What exactly, Adam are the hurdles uh, for a government like Ukraine that wants to acquire weapons from abroad? I mean, most of the big arms manufacturers in the world are are private companies, right? So is this an economic exchange like like any other? You know, if you can pay the bill, you can just make an order and and get something in return? Or are there usually other big legal political strictures in place? I mean, whether on the importing side or the exporting side. Yeah, this is, it touches on a really fundamental tension in modern history between what is generally the private manufacture of weapons. I mean, you could, of course, and you can, and historically, it has been the case that weapons have also been manufactured in state arsenals. But for all of the reasons that you might expect under conditions of capitalism, that hasn't often been the popular choice. And private industry has muscled in on this. So on the one hand, you have private profit-driven manufacturers making what? Well, they're not in this case making coffee pots or tin pans or motor cars. They're making the weapons, the control of which ultimately defines statehood. It defines sovereignty. The control of the legitimate means of violence is what, in some definitions, defines what a state is. So this has been a zone of conflict for more than a century. Prior to World War I, in the late 19th century, there was pretty much a free-for-all. It was just an explosive mixture in which any government around the world, newly independent states in part, you know, made offers by Vickers Armstrong or Schneider Creuset in France for, hey, I think you probably need a battleship. You've got one on, you know, we can we can run one off for you. And that's obviously an absolutely toxic mixture. It was one of the origins of modern theories of imperialism was precisely this nexus between heavy industrial arms manufacturer and the extension of private interests, which are then backed by diplomacy. So in the interwar period after World War I, the, the control of the merchants of death, so-called, um, 
was really a uh, major interest of the early League of Nations. The arms traffic convention that the League of Nations discussed for many years was the embryo of all of this. It didn't go very far. By the 1930s, the major producers, Belgium, Sweden, France, Britain, the United States, have essentially established control of the arms trade. And in the Cold War, what happens is that the entire trade in weapons is subsumed within the politics of the blocs. So Warsaw Pact sells to its clients, NATO sells to its clients, and really that trade booms from the 1970s onwards. In the wake of that, there's another moment of free-for-all when the great arsenals of the Warsaw Pact countries come up for sale under dubious circumstances in the 1990s. As far as the United States is concerned, though, no, the whole thing is under a system of legal control. Um, Basically, the president designates a long list of countries and international organizations which can receive weapons. The Department of State then approves individual programs or case-by-case deals by companies you apply to be able to sell X to Y. If the deals go above a certain threshold limit, Congress has to be notified. And for NATO members, that threshold is set very high. So there's an awful lot of business that just goes on without further notification. But for non-NATO members, deals in the order of $25 million plus um, require congressional, not exactly approval, you just have to notify Congress so it knows what's going on. And that is the regime that uh, Ukraine is now going to be inserted into, is this government-to-government controlled conveyance of privately manufactured weapons against payment, in this case, in the form of money provided by the United States. You know, it's an explicit hearkening back to the Lend-Lease law during World War II, right? I mean, I mean, how does the current arrangement, though, compare with the original? Yeah, Lend-Lease is an extraordinary construction. I mean, it's a, it's a backlash against the experience in World War I, where the Allied war effort was financed through liberty loans, which were extended to European governments, Britain and France and Russia. And they then bought weapons in the United States and not so much even weapons as raw materials because they manufactured their own weapons in World War I. And then the governments of Europe ended up owing the American taxpayer money, and that turned out to be an absolutely toxic combination. So instead, in 1941, the Roosevelt administration pushes this measure, Lend-Lease, which is far more generous fundamentally. What it basically says is, you've got a fire going on, you're my neighbour, I'm going to lend you my hosepipe, and then we're going to expect you to give the hosepipe back at the end of the war. And you think about this for a second, you say, hang on, this isn't the hosepipe. We're going to give them weapons. They're not going to give them back at the end of the war. One of the opponents of Lend-Lease in 41 archly observed it was a little bit like lending somebody a piece of gum. You definitely don't want it back at the end. That isn't the basis of this trade. Really, they're grants uh, to a considerable extent. And what the Lend-Lease Act going through, it's passed Senate unanimously. It's astonishing. And it passed the House with only 10 votes against. It's now heading to Biden's desk. Um, and what it will do is enable Biden to just speed up this process. It's a, it's a very short piece of legislation. It's largely symbolic. But what it says is Lend-Lease plus Congress basically wants to put no objections in the way of anything you do in this direction. It strips back the re- reporting requirements. The United mm-hmm. States is by itself bankrolling a total war effort in Ukraine. So this is huge, and it's doing it urgently. And that is... The analogy also to 1941. Apparently, the Lend-Lease office in D.C. had one big slogan uh, above the office door, which was simply, time is short. Um, And that is the spirit, I think, in which this legislation has been passed. It's really all about scale and urgency. I do just want to briefly clarify, when you say with Lend-Lease, 
is it that the arms that are being given to Ukraine are weapons that are currently in the U.S. military's armory? I mean, is that the difference here versus giving them money to buy weapons from private manufacturers? It appears to be all of the above, whatever it takes, 12 flights a day, like a gigantic airlift. And a considerable portion of it is coming from American military stocks because these things take too long to produce for them to be supplied out of current production. That was a question I had. I mean, like how quickly generally can arms manufacturers ramp up production? I mean, do they just tend to have spare capacity to supply a war on this scale of, of what Ukraine is, is facing right now? Or, you know, if there's major military mobilization, would resources need to be diverted from other parts of the economy to ramp up production? To some degree, yes. But, but we have to place this in perspective. This is very small business by comparison with the size of the United States economy. So in Ukraine, this is a total war effort, um, of which to the degree that we're funding it, they don't feel the impact, but their economy is in freefall. So they need all the help they can get. For us, this is, it will make a difference to individual communities around Lockheed Martin plants or Raytheon plants, which the president has taken to visiting of late. Mm. But these are small operations in the grander scheme of things. You know, the Lockheed plant, I think, that makes the Javelin employs a couple of thousand people, perhaps maximum. Um, so we're talking about modest scale of production, surprisingly modest, in fact, because um, Ukraine says it needs 500 Javelins a day. Our current production capacity for javelins is 6,500 a year. So there is a huge gap between the actual demands of a anti-tank intensive war and the kind of capacity America made available to itself to just test and build and stockpile 30 odd thousand of these highly sophisticated weapons since they were introduced in the early 1990s. We think America has like a low 20,000 in total stocks. So the 6,000 we've already shipped, um, 7,000, I think, heading towards to Ukraine are a considerable portion of that. And it'll be very hard to replace them. You know, it takes apparently 32 months from the order being placed to one of these missile systems uh, being delivered to a warehouse in the American military. That's an awful long wait. And the problem is also that they require hundreds of microchips, which have to be sourced from all over the world under the conditions of supply chain disruption. I think there's like 240 separate microchip components in the Javelin. Mm. Um, so yes, there are going to be difficulties, but at some point they are going to run out of Russian tanks to kill with these devastatingly effective anti-tank missiles. It doesn't look as though we are really going to end up scraping the barrel there. But there are talks urgently underway to increase American production of this kit. And Lockheed has volunteered to ramp up production and pre-fund of its own accord in the expectation, of course, of a very good stream of business to come. So I want to try to picture, I guess, some of these arms exchanges or the arms trade more, more specifically. I mean, when a government buys major military weapons, are they also sort of buying services that are sort of paired with those weapons? I mean, do they come with training, uh, servicing for repairs, that kind of thing? I mean, what is included in that kind of order? And I mean, maybe even do they get tips on how to strategically deploy these weapons? I mean, it just generally, does that all make militaries dependent in a way on their arms providers? I mean, I guess, could it be hard for them to mix and match products from different manufacturers generally? Oh, absolutely. This interchangeability issue is critical, which is why Ukraine is generally not being supplied with any heavy weapons from Western arsenals, because it's a military that's set up to use Soviet era and Russian provided weapons, you know, the T-series tanks and, and MiG um, fighter aircraft. 
But absolutely, there's a symbiotic relationship between the militaries and the private corporations that supply them with arms. Um, and it goes absolutely both ways in the sense that the military coach the companies into figuring out what kind of kit they want. And the companies push back and constantly toggle the designs in ways which will be more beneficial for them. There is genuine expertise that's developed on both sides. Most military systems in the United States now can no longer operate without substantial contractor input. And it's not for nothing that, you know, the boards and the managerial hierarchies of the major arms manufacturers are stocked with ex-military figures. Um, and the sums involved here are gigantic. So the biggest weapon system of all, in all t- of all time in history, in fact, maybe the most expensive thing that humans have ever made, is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter aircraft. Um, the total program cost is estimated to be $1.7 trillion over a time horizon that runs to 2070. And of that $1.7 trillion in expenditure that will be funded by American taxpayers, $1.3 trillion is so-called sustainment. In other words, maintenance, servicing, upgrading, training, all of that service component that goes along with the shiny new aircraft that's delivered. So $1.3 trillion out of $1.7, two-thirds of the cost of the program is in that soft tissue service upgrading component. And even before many of them have entered into service, they're already in a series of of software upgrades because they're so complex that maintaining them at a state-of-the-art level is a hugely complex uh, project management task. Is that like a separate invoice, the servicing, or is that then you just keep sort of building for for that kind of thing? It's a matter of massively contentious debate in military industrial circles these issues, because of course, the way you do it is that you, you know, you you promise Congress you're going to get, you know, several thousand F-35s for, you know, the snap at five hundred billion dollars, and then you upcharge in. Except you won't be able to fly them five years from now yeah. unless we add a hundred billion dollars. And when we get to fifteen years out, they're going to need to be comprehensively regraded, and we may have difficulty sourcing some of the supplies. So we should probably reckon two hundred fifty billion dollars mm. for that upgrade. And that's how you end up there. And all of this then requires forensic accountancy to establish exactly what is being claimed by each side. And who knows, right? I mean, then the information asymmetries come massively into play. So this is anything other than a perfect market where you could say that well-informed actors on both sides size each other up, choose between competitive options. It's just an open season for various types of manipulation. And just, I guess, maybe briefly a procurement question, because you sort of touched on this, but I was sort of surprised to see it at first that, yeah, when it came to you supplying Ukraine, they preferred old Cold War era tanks to new ones, right? I mean, in other words, they, 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 Europe is trying to scrounge up old tanks to send them that are haven't been used since the 50s or 60s, because Ukraine I, on some level, found those easier to deploy than new ones because they were more used to the general logistics, right? No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you have a, a force that's trained on a certain family of equipment, then that's what you've got to stick with um, because otherwise you have to put everyone through very comprehensive retraining programs. To what extent does providing the financing and the material for war and the ways we're, we're talking about, I mean, to what extent does that make you a party to that war. I mean, I know this is a big question here in Germany. Everyone does not want to get uh, become a, a party to the war is the way they describe it. Is there any clear international law around this question of financing and, and, and providing of arms? It's actually oddly blurry. You would have thought this would have been sorted out, but it is con- very contentious. There's at least two principles which are relatively easy to wrap one's head around at stake. One is the neutrality principle and supplying weapons 
as a non-belligerent means that you violate neutrality in the strict sense of the word. And this goes all the way back to Lend-Lease in 1941, the jurisprudence in modern terms of non-combatants supplying weapons to combatants and the concept of non-belligerence that emerges from that, which is not neutrality, was coined in 1941 by American jurists and lawyers to justify the position they were taking. It's also, however, true that as a non-belligerent supplying arms to a belligerent, it's not at all clear that that by itself justifies warlike measures against you by the war-making parties. It could justify sanctions of various types, but it doesn't justify warlike activity, especially if, and this is, of course, our interpretation of the war, the war itself is not something that we take a neutral position on because we invoke instead the right to self-defense and perhaps in the background, the prohibition of aggressive war And Russia, in this case, has obviously transgressed the prohibition of aggressive war, and Ukraine is engaged in entirely legitimate self-defense. And furthermore, Ukraine is hugely disadvantaged by its much, much smaller military compared to Russia. So in supplying Ukraine, in a sense, all we're doing is squaring the fight out, right? We're we're re-establishing parity. To impose an arms embargo in a situation of massive asymmetry is effectively to take sides. Once more, in this case, it was Russia that chose to turn this into a war in the first place. And legal principles aside, it remains essentially Russia's choice as to whether or not it chooses to interpret our justifiable acts of support for Ukraine. Contentious, perhaps, but clearly justifiable. Yeah, we do do have to leave it here for now. Uh, This is usually where we log off our respective computers. But uh, I think we're going to go out for for a drink now. Yeah, it's a bull. Exactly. All right. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.